Thank you, Mark and Grace, and thank you each one for singing out. We are back to the Gospel of John. Uh, we, when last we saw our hero, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, it's been a while, uh, but uh, now we can come back and continue the story. And so the text before us this Lord's Day is Ro- uh, Romans. Yeah, find your way to the Romans, and I'll be reading from John. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 47. And so this is, the, this is what follows uh, the raising of Lazarus. And one of the things, uh, the, the, the message title is Reactions to Christ. And so as we're reading through, just notice um, the reactions to Christ, the differing reactions to Christ. Follow along in your Bible, if you will, as I read, uh, starting at verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and and not that the whole nation should should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only but also that he would gather together in one children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. As I said, there's there's differing reactions to the miracle of, of the raising of Lazarus. We saw that before. It's been, I think, a month. But we, we saw how Lazarus was raised from the dead in Bethany. And that miracle was important for a number of reasons. Uh, first, we remember Lazarus had been buried for four days. Remember, he was very ill. The sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to Jesus, saying, Lazarus, whom you love. In other words, uh, he was, the family was much beloved to Jesus. He say, he's sick, come and help him. And Jesus didn't come. He waited for two days and then said to his disciples, now we'll go. And they said, why? He's dead. And I'm kind of abbreviating. But he waited. Now, as, as I walked through before, the timing seems to indicate, since it's about a one-day trip to where Jesus was, one day, the, he, Lazarus probably died while the messengers were on the way. And so, and in, in that part of the world, especially among the Jewish traditions still there, usually you bury uh, within 24 hours of death. And so if he died early in the day, the most natural thing in the world is they would have had a, a quick uh, gathering and he would have been buried. 
So when Jesus arrives, he's, he's been buried for four days. Now that's significant uh, because there could be no question that he was dead. You know, some people might, might have argued, well, 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 maybe he was just uh, really weak and Jesus came in and, 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 and he was revived or something. Uh, it, it would be most unexpected that they would have put his body in a box as we do. So people would have seen him ill, dead, put in the tomb, and the tomb sealed. So, so they were there. Uh, this was just two miles away from Jerusalem. So those who were there, and many from Jerusalem were even told some of the Jews, which means the Jewish leaders were there. But the key is, no one's going to argue that he was dead. They saw his body going into the tomb. They saw the tomb sealed. And so that just really hammered, you can't argue with this. And what's interesting is they, this wasn't a, a, a put on show. You know, have you ever seen these advertisements come and, and, and see miracles? And, and we won't go into it. There's a lot of times where uh, it's all staged and, and, and it's clearly phony. I remember years ago where this, this guy had a special gift for lengthening legs. And, and so he, they would come in and one leg was off. And so he would pull on the leg and it would be healed. And then one of the news stations got in with a camera and watched what he did. What, what he did was he would pull the shoe a little bit. And, and so it just made it look like the, it just, the shoe was a little loose. And he pulled it to, so the shoes matched up. Phony. Well, these people didn't come to a pre-advertised service. The pre-advertised show. They were there to comfort Mary and Martha because Lazarus had died. They weren't expecting, Jesus wasn't even on the scene. A lot of people were asking, wonder why he didn't come. He could heal all kinds of people. Why didn't he, either why didn't he come and heal his friend or too bad he wasn't here. But, but the key is they weren't looking for a miracle. They were there as an act of mercy. And by the way, that's one of the things I often see, it seems, in Scripture that often great blessing comes when we're on the path of obedience. And they were doing the right thing, coming to comfort these sisters. And while we're in the path of doing the right thing, and I always think of Ruth and Boaz, how did they meet? They were both doing their job. They're both serving the Lord. And God used that mightily to bring them together. And so these people were there, and they were just doing the right thing. They were there to comfort. They weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't looking for a miracle. And so that's significant. And again, it was two miles from Jerusalem. So this isn't something out in some backwater. Oh, yeah, that happened. I believe that. No. Many of the people, this is the Jews, which we've seen, they're all Jews, really, mostly in, the, in Israel. But in other words, the key is these were the Jewish leaders. And so Mary and Martha every, and, and Lazarus were apparently from a prominent family. We can tell that from the kind of grave he was in and more. So they, they were there not looking for Jesus, not sympathetic to Jesus, and they saw the miracle. Uh, and so having seen that, then there were different reactions. The first reaction we see is, where so many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did and believed in him. Now, 
I can't be dogmatic what that means, believed. It can mean they just, uh, they believed, oh, wow, that, that happened. It can believe they think, okay, he is able to do miracles. It does say they believed in him, and that's significant. It may be that they, they, they actually personally trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. They came to saving faith. Or maybe they, were just, maybe they were just convinced, you know what? I think he's the Messiah. But some had a positive, believing response. Either that he is the Messiah, or they in their heart trusted in him. And some have suggested that maybe later on, some of these who believed here are some of those who responded to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. When the thousands came forward, they were already thoroughly convinced. And when Peter came forward and said, yes, he's the Messiah, and look what you did to Messiah, you crucified him, that may have been the response. But the key is, some who were there for the miracle believed not just the miracle, but it says believed in Jesus. After three years of very public ministry, and everybody in the, in the, the nation knowing about Jesus. These, even at this late stage, saw the miracle for themselves and believed. That was some of the response. But then we're, we're told that wasn't the only response. You see in, in verse 46, some of them, so some believed, some went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. If you look at that, it looks like there's a contrast, doesn't there? Some believed, some went to the Pharisees to report. Now, why would they do that? Do you remember that already we've seen in the Gospel of John that the religious leaders have already decided if you believe in Jesus, you'll be excommunicated from the synagogue. You'll be cut off. And we saw that in John 9, 22. Remember when the man... And, and this is only a couple chapters ago, uh, and I think it was still this year when we were doing, on this passage. But when, when the man was healed and they went to the parents and said, you know, was he, really, was he really in need of healing from birth? Was he really blind from birth? And, 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 and they didn't want to believe. And the parents, remember they interviewed the parents. Is this your son? Yes, this is our son. Was he blind? Yes, he was blind. What happened? Ask him. And we're told because they knew, John 9, 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So they didn't want to, they didn't want the cost of saying, we are so delighted that God's healed our son. They were trying to be careful. And so what that tells me is the, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees and the priests had already decided if you are a follower of Jesus, you're kicked out of the synagogue. So when it says some of those who saw the miracle, not the ones who believed in him, but others went and told the Pharisees. Why? I think they were, to use the Greek term, tattletaling. Uh, they were bringing a report. We've got problems. So it was a warning, an alert. Jesus just did an amazing miracle and lots of people 
are being persuaded. We have a problem. In verses 47 to 48, it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we're told uh, that they, they gathered, a, uh, they called together a committee. And they're going to take some formal action, or at least uh, they're, they're bringing together leaders, if not the whole Sanhedrin, a, a portion of it. We have to figure out what we're going to do. And notice who's there. Chief priests and Pharisees. Those are two different groups. Most of the priests, especially the chief priests, were of the Sadducees. Remember those, I call those um, deists. They believed in God. They believed he created all things. They believed the first five books of the Bible were, were God's word. But they didn't believe God was active. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in eternal soul. Um, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. That's the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in all those things. They believed the Bible. They believed in eternal soul. They believed in miracles and resurrection. But they added to that the traditions of the rabbis were of equal authority. So, so it's actually Sadducees and Pharisees were about as far, theologically, about as far apart as you can get. And yet here they are coming together. This would be like hearing in the news that the leading Democrats and leading Republicans are, were gathering together to figure out how they're going to respond to a particular candidate. It's like, what are you guys doing together? Um, you know, and, and, of course, they probably tell you, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> in other words, but in other words, this is a strange group that's gathering here. And that just shows you, they can say, we differ on just about everything. But one thing we can agree on, we don't want the mess that Jesus is going to bring. The miracle at Bethany has stirred them up. His signs can't be refuted. That was really a problem for the Sadducees because they don't believe in miracles. And yet here, they had several reputable witnesses come to them and tell them, Jesus raised a dead man. We've got problems, they're thinking. And not just problems of this is contrary to what we believe, but this is going to stir up the crowd in ways we don't approve. And it seems like, when, notice when it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and said, they're all together, what shall we do? This man works mighty signs. And the Sadducees don't even believe in signs. This is a problem. What are we going to do? And notice that question, what are we going to do? If you've ever been in a committee and, and, and everyone's saying, what are we going to do? That's not a good sign. Uh, or maybe you're out in the parking lot and someone, someone's car is on fire and everyone's standing around and saying, what are we going to do? In other words, you, you get the sense of uh, despair, hopelessness. It's like, we've lost control of this situation. What are we going to do? And these are the leaders of Israel Jesus is becoming a real problem in their mindset. And they say, if we leave him alone, everyone will believe in him. This is getting out of hand. 
People are starting to believe in Jesus. And if we don't stop him now, everyone will believe. Now, this is one of those examples where everyone doesn't mean everyone. Because they're not planning on believing. So this is kind of a generic statement. Every, every, you know, everyone's going to believe in him. And then verse 48. Now, by the way, why is it, what's the problem if everyone believes in Jesus? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice that. What's the problem with Jesus? It's really not theological. You know, they're not saying he's not, he's, you know, we don't believe he's the Messiah and he's misleading people. We don't believe he's, you know, they're, they're, what they're saying is, there are consequences to this that we don't like, and those consequences are political. It's a political issue, really, more than a religious issue. Notice they say, we will lose our, our place and our nation. If he, if the crowds follow him, we lose our prestige. Here in the Sadducees, they're in charge of the synagogue or the, the, the temple. And they're saying, we're going to lose our place. The temple is what they're thinking about. And our nation, what they're saying is, Jesus is going to take, if, if everybody follows Jesus, they're not going to follow us. There's nothing in here about, do you see them saying, and this would be contrary to God's word, to God's will? They're not here worried about that, that heresy is abounding or anything. What they're worried about is they're going to lose their prestige, their position, their power. They're going to lose their place. It's about them. And there's nothing here about seeking God's will. What are we going to do? You know, they're talking about political action instead of praying, seeking the Lord. You know, you don't see them saying, maybe we need to examine, could it be that he's the Messiah? There's so much of this that, frankly, is problematic because this fits with Scripture. They're not talking like that. This is an inconvenient situation because it's contrary to our, our position. We're going to lose our authority this is one of the things that troubles me so often. And so, and so often you'll hear, like in political leaders, and you hear the kind of things they say. It seems like their first concern is, am I going to lose my office? You hear, or you hear the different parties. If we don't do something, we're going to lose the majority. We're going to lose control of the House or the Senate or whatever it might be. Instead of saying, what's the right thing? What does our nation need? It seems like the ultimate issue is, can we, can we preserve our power, our place, our position? You'll see that with politicians where all of a sudden it seems like they'll do a 180 degree turn on an issue. Why? You know, it's the old finger in the wind thing. Okay, uh, we just got some new studies and new surveys. Uh, this is a more popular thing to say instead of saying, what's the truth? You don't see that with Jesus, do you? Where does he, do you think you see him wrestling with, huh, what's going to be popular with the crowd? No, he, he just speaks the truth. And you don't see that here. Not what the truth, not what's right. It's what's going to help us keep our position, keep our place. 
couple reminds you know they're but they're looking at in those terms not what's right I'm remind, this reminds me of what uh, General Stonewall Jackson used to say. Duty is ours, consequences are God's. His view was very simple. Just obey God and leave, it, leave the rest up to him. That's where we should... We don't see that here, do you? You don't say that. What would God have us do? Another... Some, occasionally I've, I've quoted a fellow named Spurgeon. Here's another one. The right way for a Christian to live is to do what his master bids him, leaving all consequences to the Almighty. If I'm willing to do what God tells me, as he tells me, when he tells me, and because he tells me, I shall not turn back in the day of battle. That's the issue. What does God want? That's the only issue. What's the right thing to do? But you don't see them saying that in this council. What they're saying is, we've got a problem. This guy's going to mess up our life. And then verses 49 to 52, one of them speaks up. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for, that, for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And by the way, how do you, how do you like his, the way he speaks to them? You know nothing at all. Now, I don't want to throw around too much Greek, but you know, in, in English, a double negative, like the negatives cancel each other. Uh, in Greek, a double negative is emphatic. And so what he says is um, kind of what you'll hear sometimes, you don't know nothing. That's almost a literal translation of the Greek here. You don't know nothing. You don't know anything at all. That, that doesn't sound quite like polite conversation, does it? A Jewish historian, Josephus, I've mentioned him various times. He was, he's writing um, in the first century. Uh, and he was there during the fall of the temple, and he was, he was a Jew writing to Romans so they could understand the Jewish groups. And he, he often would compare Jews, Jewish sects, or Jew, he called them philosophical schools. But anyway, he said this, the Pharisees are affectionate to each other and cultivate harmonious relations with the community. The Sadducees, on the contrary, are even among themselves rather savage in their conduct and in their relations with their peers as are are as ungentle as they are to us, as they are to aliens. In other words, the Sadducees were just brutal in the way they talked to each other. Caiaphas proves that, doesn't he? You don't know anything. So they're all struggling, and here he's going to say, what's wrong with you people? You don't know anything. And then he offers a, uh, an idea. One man dying will help the whole nation. What's he talking about? If we kill Jesus, it will solve our political problems. There's nothing in what he is saying that has anything to do with justice or crime. It's, it's strictly expedience. We kill him, our problems go away. That sounds more like a mobster than a religious leader. 
But, but he's not talking right or wrong, law or justice. He's just saying, we killed Jesus and the problem goes away. Coldly saying, let's just kill this guy and the problem's gone. I mean, that sounds like some uh, unjust nation that just kill, you know, kill the leaders that, uh, uh, that disagree with you. You could call that situational ethics. Well, is that the right thing to do? It solves our problem, doesn't it? Instead of, again, what's the question? What, is, what does God's word tell us to do? What's the right thing to do? That's a challenge to each of us. You know, how do we approach solving problems? Do we look at it in terms of what will make the problem go away? Or do we look at it and say, what would the Lord have me to do? What's the right thing to do? And then just trusting God with the consequences. He's talking about political expediency. You know, um, again, spoiler alert, it's going to come up again with Pontius Pilate. He's going to say, kill Jesus. After he has repeatedly said, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. He is not guilty of any crime, but let's go ahead and kill him. How can he say that? Because it's going to satisfy the crowd and quiet them down. And his only concern is, I've got to keep my job. If things get, get, get out of line in Jerusalem, Rome's going to hear, and I could be in a lot of trouble. Easy solution. We kill one innocent man, and the, and, and the, the problem kind of quiets down. What a challenge that we don't fall into the same trap in some of the areas of our life. It may not be, be the right thing to do, but it's the easy thing, and it will solve the problem. What's the right thing to do is how we should be asking. What's God's word tell us? What's, what's God's way of addressing this issue? But that's not how he's talking. We kill him. Problem solved. How cold-blooded. How ungodly of this religious leader. But John tells us he didn't even realize what he was saying. John says, listen to what he said, and you recognize that it really he was speaking truth he didn't understand. God was prophesying through him. He wasn't speaking of himself literally. And so God spoke through him to, to tell us something that he didn't intend to say. Now some people are, wait a minute, didn't you just tell me this guy's like an ungodly mobster and now you're saying God's using him as a prophet? That's not unheard of in the scriptures. Remember Balaam was such a, he was an ungodly uh, man uh, and yet God pro prophesied blessing over the nation of Israel through Balaam. And there was someone else in that story that God spoke through. Balaam's donkey. Well, if, so in other words, if God can speak through these, he could speak through a Caiaphas. And as he was high priest, he used that opportunity. Verses 51 to 52 again. He didn't say this of, of, on his own. If you're looking at the a translation like mine, I have the word authority, but it's in italics. You could just leave out the authority. He didn't speak of it, uh, out of his own, of himself. But high, being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation. 
and not for the nation only, but also who had gathered together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas was terribly wrong. Killed Jesus to solve our political problems. But what Caiaphas said was right. If Jesus dies, the nation benefits. That's central to the gospel. The way Jesus solves our sin problem is he dies for it. He dies as the one who pays the penalty we deserve to pay. He dies as the payment for our guilt. And and John notices he didn't just die for the nation. He didn't just die for Jews, but for Gentiles also. And he would gather, not for the nation only, but also he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Remember how Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold? Speaking of the Gentiles. That it, so, so John is saying, look what Caiaphas said. One, it was true in a way he didn't imagine. The nation would benefit uh, through the death of Christ. Now that doesn't mean every uh, Jew would believe, but the remnant, the, the elect within the nation, and also among the Gentiles. His one death would benefit all God's people. And here, by not talking political, but spiritually, eternal benefits as Christ would die for the sins of his people. Um, so, so Caiaphas was speaking truth. He didn't even know. But also, he was terribly wrong in the way he meant it. If Jesus dies, um, then our problems go away and we don't have a problem with Rome. Spring forward just 40 years from now, from that time. In A.D. 70, Rome comes in and destroys Israel, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Remember Jesus said, not one stone will stand upon another, literally fulfilled. The nation scattered. Killing Jesus didn't stop that. In fact, Killing Jesus brought that on. Because when they killed Jesus, they killed the Messiah that God sent to them. And so instead, God sent judgment. Remember how Jesus will look out over the Sea of of Galilee, look out over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hand gathers her chicks. But you would not. You were unwilling. And so he said, therefore, as he looked out over Jerusalem, this is the painful thing of the eyes of prophecy. He looked out over a beautiful city, a glorious uh, temple. But as in his mind's eyes, he could always, already see, hear the wailing. He could see the flames and the smoke. He could see the destruction of God's judgment just in a couple of decades after his death. So Caiaphas was wrong. We kill Jesus, we solve our problem. No. We kill Jesus and we have a problem much bigger than we could have imagined. We'll have slain the Messiah God sent to us. But what if they had said, can you imagine if they had said, if Caiaphas had said, now now guys, we have a problem. 
Jesus is running contrary. As a, as a, as a Sadducee, I don't believe in miracles, but I, I can't argue with the fact a miracle just happened two miles from here. And, and if we look at the life of Jesus, there's no sin in his life. If we look at his teachings, it's consistent with Scripture. If we look at his life, he's fulfilling Scripture one after another. I think we have a problem. I think we've missed the Messiah. We need to sit down and look at this. And if we follow, and if he is the Messiah, we follow him, God's going to take care of us. His counsel was totally wrong. And instead of placating the Romans, he brought on the wrath of God. Peter will tell the people of Jerusalem that at the day of Pentecost. When he says, God sent the Messiah to you and you killed him, several in the crowd realize, and, and some of those may have been the ones who saw Lazarus raised, and, 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 and they'll say, oh no, he's, he's right. And they put two and two together. If Jesus is the Messiah and we killed him, we are in a lot of trouble. And they say, Peter, what do we do? And he says, if the nation will repent, there's still hope. But the nation didn't repent. Several did. But the nation as a whole still in rebellion. Caiaphas couldn't have gotten it more wrong in the way he meant it. But what God meant, he was exactly right. Through the death of one, all of God's people, those among the Jews and those among the Gentiles, all of God's people redeemed saved, preserved. And then verses 53 and 54, and then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Again, this sounds like a, a crime novel. This sounds like a mob action. They started the plot to murder Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples. And so they, the, the plan was hatched. To, you know, we've got to do something. We're going to look for a chance to kill him. And it says, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly. Was he afraid of dying? No, that's why he came. But he knew the father had a schedule and a plan. He wasn't to die in some back alley. He was to die on a cross where all Jerusalem could see. And he was going to die at the time of the death of the Passover lamb. It wasn't God's time and God's way to fall to a plot. And so he removed himself to get out of the center of activity until it was at God's time. And he went to a city called Ephraim. That's how we typically pronounce it, Ephraim. Actually, the correct way of pronouncing it is Ephraim. Um, but you can say it either way. And so he went to the city called Ephraim, Ephraim, and remained there with his disciples. Tonight, I'd like to show you that on a map, but I don't know where it is. <laughs> a good Bible, you know, we just don't know exactly where it is. We're told it's near the wilderness. We're not sure if it was across the Jordan River into this region called Perea or if it's on the western side of the river. We're not exactly sure, but it was kind of an out-of-the-way area to kind of keep his head low until it was God's time. And that's where he stayed 
for a while, and then he's going to make the journey towards Jerusalem that we'll see uh, the arrival of that in chapter in the next chapter. Verse 55 then continues the narrative. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it to them that they might seize him. Now I should tell you, there, it seems to me there's, there's, a, there's one of these gaps that John will sometimes throw between verse 54 and 55. To remind you what had happened, we saw Jesus with the healing of the blind man. That was around the time of, uh, of Hanukkah, the dedication feast, around Christmas time, mid-late December. Passover, April. So after the healing, Jesus, we're told, went to... Uh, across the Jordan to where John had been baptizing into the region called Perea. And that's where he was. We're not sure how long that period was when Lazarus gets sick, they go, they bring him, he does the healing. Could have been a month, could have been weeks since he left, we're not sure. From there he then goes off to Ephraim to, to stay low for a while until he comes back. So between verse 54 and 55, it could be weeks or even a month or two. John doesn't tell us exactly. But it just says, now the Passover. So he springs forward to, to now we're, uh, we're approaching the Passover. And we're told that Jews started gathering in Jerusalem. Which would be pretty close to the Passover. And so they could, if you had any kind of ritual impurity, you couldn't participate. And so they were going through and doing what they needed to do. They might have needed to offer a sacrifice, go to the ritual baths. Uh, and so people were all, before the Passover week began, they're already gathering in Jerusalem. And on everyone's mind is, what do you think? Is Jesus going to show up this time? Now, if you follow through the Gospels, he, he, he keeps coming at Passover to Jerusalem. Is he going to show up this time? Because everybody knows he's hunted. Everybody knows they're after him. And so the question they ask is literally, what do you think? He won't come to the feast, will he? So everyone's kind of great. No, not this time. But, but, but notice this. People coming in from outside of Jerusalem, gathering in Jerusalem. So there was Jews all over the land. They all know about Jesus. They all know about the conflict with the political leaders. And that's what everybody is talking about. What do you think about Jesus. So sometimes we kind of get the idea, if you watch the movies, sometimes it seems like Jesus just hangs with the 12 and no one's around. Everybody knows about Jesus. And that's the conversation in Jerusalem uh, before he arrives. And we're told the chief priests and the Pharisees had given command, if anyone knew where he was, he should be reported so they could seize him. So the word is out. If you see Jesus, report it. Um, what, it's, what the Hebrew phrase was, if you see him, report him. Or if you see something, say something. Everyone was watching for Jesus. Of course, not everyone would follow that, but they knew. He was a hunted and marked man. And Passover was approaching. 
So, and everyone's talking, the two things you're not supposed to talk about, politics and religion. Is he the Messiah? Will the political leaders accept him? What do you think? Surely he won't come this feast. So what do, we, what, I, what do we gain as we look at this passage? First thing it shows us clearly is that Israel was a divided people at this time. There were lots of issues, you know, differing views about Jesus. And isn't it true there's nothing new under the sun? You, you know, in our country, everybody knows something about Jesus. Now granted, increasingly, that's, that's diminishing. But there's lots of people who can talk about Jesus, but they'll tell you all kinds of things. And they'll, they, they can describe a Jesus that you don't recognize. But the key is Jesus is the issue and there's lots of, lots of different opinions. Some of them trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Certainly his disciples except for Judas, Iscariot. And many others as well. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Maybe, maybe some of those who saw Lazarus raised actually came to saving faith in Jesus at that time. So some were genuine believers. And one of the ways I really see that is when Jesus at the the Lord's, you know, at the, the Last Supper, he says to the disciples, you're clean, but not all of you. Notice, your, you. Your sins are forgiven except for this one Judas who doesn't believe. So some in Israel were genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think some were convinced he was from God. Maybe like, like, like John the Baptist. They might have think, well, he's, like, he's another prophet. That doesn't mean they're trusting in him as Savior, but they're, they're saying he, he must be from God. Remember Nicodemus? When he went to see Jesus, he wasn't convinced in trusting him as Savior yet. But he, he said, there's no question, you're from God. You couldn't do what you do if you weren't from God. So some, um, some must have thought about Jesus in that way. But in John 6, Jesus said, unless you eat and drink of me, you won't have life. But he was using that as an illustration. It's not enough to see a meal laid out before you and say, wow, that, that smells great. It looks great. It's getting close to noon and I shouldn't do this to you. But you know, you've got this wonderful meal laid out and say, I believe that's probably the most beautiful, whatever you like is, piece of chicken, square of tofu, whatever it is. <laughs> that's, the, that's the loveliest I've ever seen. I, I know that would be great. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> That's the greatest looking steak. And I didn't know you could have a six inch steak, but that's, that's, that's great. And, but you could say all you want to how wonderful that would be. But it's not doing you any good unless you eat it. And that's why Jesus was saying, you can know all you want about me, but unless you personally take me into your life by faith. No, it's, it's a personal response you can have the most lavish buffet and say, go for it. But if you don't actually go to the buffet and, and eat of it, it does you no good. And so there were some in Israel that I think were convinced Jesus is the Messiah. But one, they had a wrong view of Messiah. He must be political. Or, but they, did, or they just said, yeah, he's doing miracles. But they weren't trusting in him personally as their Savior. Some, some were not sure what to think. And I can imagine some were saying, no, if Jesus was the Messiah, our rabbi would tell us. But our rabbi either, he, he's not saying or, or he's, he's speaking against him. Or 
If the high priest himself rejects Jesus, surely he's not the Messiah. You know, so there were, there, were, there were lots of people who just weren't sure what to think. But he did the miracles. Yeah, he did the miracles. And have you ever heard sermons like that? Never. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of people like that today, and they kind of want to stay. I don't know. I don't know what to think. Some, like we've already read about today, felt like Jesus was a threat to the status quo. If Jesus is who he says he is, then I'm wrong, and I lose my job. You know, there are, in the world of science and the world of theology, uh, there are those who say, I'm not going to study that issue because if I reach a conclusion, I might have to lose my job. So I'm just not going to go there. I've talked to guys uh, that will do that theologically. Um, I'm not going to study that issue because if I do, then I might get kicked out of the school. So I just won't, I won't look into it. And so there were some that would just say, you know, believing in Jesus will destroy the status quo, so I'm just not going to consider his claims. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's not really too far to believe. You know, because some would say, if I believed in Jesus and really obeyed him, I couldn't keep my job. If I believed in Jesus and really obeyed him, then uh, I might lose my celebrity status. If I believed in Jesus and really obeyed him, um, no one would vote for me. You know, follow, go all the way through. If I really followed in Jesus, in today's culture, I might be out. And we've given an example of the Finnish member of parliament because she took a picture of a Bible verse about uh, God's view of unnatural affections, um, she was facing criminal charges. They eventually dropped them. But in other places, if you address this issue, you are out. But that's gone on throughout history. Where I think of the time of the persecutions, the day, day, time of John Bunyan and others. If you preach Jesus Christ... You'd be kicked out of the church and you might end up in prison like John Bunyan did for 12 years. And so the challenge becomes, do I trust in Jesus? It, it, could, it could really change my life and I'm afraid of that. But you know, the ultimate issue is not what they believed here or what they were willing to say here as much as where their heart was. Am I really, am I willing to surrender my life to Jesus Christ? And say, here you are, Lord. Take it and do what you will. That was the issue. Am I prepared to bow before him and yield to him? Some were already saying yes. Disciples said, Master, didn't we already leave everything to follow you? And some would say, not on your life. I'm comfortable. Jesus, you see from this, divides, doesn't he? Some people say, well, 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 Jesus should bring this all together. Actually, Jesus divides. There's a real division between the Jewish leadership who doesn't want him and those who want him. Jesus divides. 
Also notice from this, miracles don't convert anyone, do they? People that saw the miracles, some believed and some reported. Remember when Jesus tells us of Lazarus and the rich man in, in, uh, after they've died? And the rich man tell, asks Abraham, please send Lazarus back to tell my brothers and, and, and they'll believe. And, and Abraham says, no, if they wouldn't believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe a man come back from the dead. Miracles don't convince. In fact, facts won't even persuade a hardened heart. It's a heart issue. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then recognize there's a heart issue that, that's telling you to hold back. And I would challenge you to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. If you're talking to someone about the gospel, if you're talking to family members or loved ones or friends about the gospel, recognize it's a heart issue. Will I give my heart to Jesus Christ? Well, Caiaphas was right. The best thing that could happen would be for Jesus to die. That people might be saved. And that's why Jesus came. To die for our sin. That we might have life eternal through faith in him. I surely hope that each one here has that. And may God give us the grace to share that glorious message with others. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his courage and his strength. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who have yielded and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, if any here, anyone hearing these words is yet to believe, Father, I pray you'd open their hearts to Jesus Christ. Lord, we are challenged by what we read here. We ask that you would help us ever to be strong and courageous, to trust you and to follow you and leave the results and consequences to you. Father, give us courage to follow to be faithful, to be boldly humble in you. I pray in Jesus' name.